Today's show is sponsored by Audible. Please visit audiblepodcast.com forward slash hardcore history for your free audiobook download. This show is part three of a three-part series. If you haven't heard the first two parts, you might want to go download those before you get started on this one. Punic Nightmares, part three. It's hardcore history. What if the Roman Empire had never existed? I'm a big fan of playing the what-if games with history, but I can't even imagine how the world might be different today if Rome had never gone on to win the Punic Wars and rise up and become the thing today we call the Roman Empire and play a major role in world events for more than 500 years. You don't have a Roman Empire and the modern world becomes impossible in so many ways. Just take religion as one example. I mean, if there's no Roman Empire, is there ever a Christianity? Who's going to kill Jesus Christ if there's no you know, Roman centurions to do it? If there's no Christianity, there's no Crusades. I mean, the Latin-based languages that make up a large part of uh, you know, what people speak around the world doesn't get spread around. You're not writing using the Western alphabet today, probably. The building blocks of our modern world. Just look at the American governmental system and how that's so tied to Roman Republican organization. It's impossible to imagine a world without the Roman Empire. And yet, in 216 BC, the day after Hannibal Barca, the great genius Carthaginian general, kills 70,000, allegedly 70,000 Romans at the Battle of Cannae, it must have been impossible for anybody to ever imagine a Roman Empire at all. Because Rome was doomed, weren't they? Well, at least doomed to whatever the Carthaginians were going to foist upon them. Remember, Hannibal wasn't trying to destroy Rome. Hannibal wanted to return conditions to the way they were before Carthaginian defeats in the First Punic War. Wanted to restore what we would call today the status quo antebellum. The way things were. But the way things were were going to be to turn Rome into a strictly regional power again. Forget about playing this role on the world stage they were going to play. They were going to be just one of many local powers. If that had happened, what's our world look like today? And here's the thing. By all odds, logic, Occam's razor, you know, Las Vegas betting lines, anything you want to think of, there should not have been a Roman Empire because of what Hannibal did in the year 216 BC. I meet a lot of people who would say that something that happened that long ago has no impact on their daily lives at all, when in reality, it's hugely important, and one of the things that makes 216 BC one of my favorite years is that this was a knife-edge-of-history moment, where history just stood poised on the blade, and it could go either way or either number of ways. And the way it should have gone was that Rome should have then, after losing all those people at Cannae, gone to Hannibal and said, let's make a deal. Let's get some negotiations going. It's time to have peace. Because after all, what was Rome going to do? To be honest, Rome had nothing to be ashamed of either. The fact that they were even around to fight a battle of Kenny was probably more than any of their contemporaries in the Mediterranean world could have done. Most of them would have sued for peace with Hannibal the year before, after the terrible defeat at Lake Trasimene. Heck, most of the contemporary Greek states would have sued for peace after the first big loss, the Battle of the Trebia, right after Hannibal crossed the Alps. 
the fact that Rome was able to put a double consular army into the field in 216 was a victory in and of itself. But then having lost that battle and lost it so decisively and in such a costly way should have assured, you know, a different world than the one we have now. The fact that it didn't involved a lot of very, in my opinion, specific things about the Romans, you know, that made them special. And I want to remind you once again that I'm not a historian or professor of history. I'm a fan. And as a fan, I get caught up in some of these things that perhaps an academic historian would, um, you know, best avoid. I play favorites. I'm biased. I find certain people admirable and other people villainous. I treat history the way, you know, you would treat a drama or a play. All the world's a stage and all the people merely players, as Shakespeare said. And on this stage, the Roman character is special. It's unusual. And it's the reason that Rome ends up confounding the odds and winning the Second Punic War eventually, when they should have lost it in 216 BC. There's a Roman poet who came after this period who coined a line that everyone, you know, all the modern writers use when they talk about this period because it's so apropos. The line is, the victor is not victorious if the vanquished does not consider himself so. That's exactly what happened with the Romans. They refused to admit that they were beaten. Sounds simple, and at the same time sort of irrational. Because you can admit you're not beaten all you want, but you don't have any army standing between this... Carthaginian genius general who just beat you three times in a row left more than 100,000 of your people dead on the battlefield a third of the Roman Senate had been wiped out on the battlefield you know another Roman consul to add to the list of dead Roman leaders this army was irresistible it would seem what's more all Rome knew that many of their allies hung by a thread just waiting to join the other side if they thought that the Romans had had it you would think that all this stuff together would be enough to make Rome hold out for the best peace they could get. But they didn't. And that's why they deserved the empire. Not the military technology, not the natural resources, not the natural manpower. It's because they had it inside them to say that the victor is not victorious if the vanquished does not consider himself so. Now, understandably... The Roman state is composed of human beings, and human beings act a certain way in certain situations. The Romans in Rome, the civilians, the citizens, were terrified. Livy says that when the first news of the defeat at Cannae arrived in Rome, the belief was that everyone had died. Both consuls were dead. No survivors existed, and the Carthaginians were on the way. Livy, who loves all the salacious details to throw in his drama story about this period, actually avoids the opportunity when it comes to talking about the panic in Rome and simply says that it was so great that anything he would write about it would diminish how it actually was. In other words, there's no way to do justice to how panicked the people were. And panic is a weird emotion. Most of us are familiar with little teeny touches of it. But... Can you imagine how you might feel if you were in a jet airliner that started to plummet to Earth? 
probably a similar kind of feeling. I imagine there are a few people within the sound of my voice that have ever experienced what it's like to have an enemy army near you with nothing to stand between it and doing horrible things to you and your loved ones. Maybe a few, but it's a common human experience that through almost all of human history, people were one way or another able to relate to. You can go read the, well, there's tons of accounts from the people who survived, you know, the sacking of a city when Berlin was taken at the end of the Second World War. You read about something like the rapes that were committed. You know, where husbands and children and fathers had to watch daughters and sisters and wives right in front of them be raped by lots of soldiers from the other side. And you start to realize, here is something that I can't even, it drives me crazy. You would just go crazy. And this is one of the minor things that the Romans can envision happening to them when, you know, the Carthaginians and Hannibal arrive at their gates and start coming in. Panic is hard to understand at that level, and yet that level's the normal level, and our level now is the abnormal one. It was what the leadership of Rome did, though, that changed the Roman fortunes in the situation. The leaders simply refused to buckle. This is where Rome earns all of their, you know, kudos. This is where they become the bar that other leaders in times of trouble judge themselves against, especially later Roman ones. How did the Roman governmental officials and people in power handle Rome's darkest moment? They simply refused to be vanquished, to admit defeat. Now, I want to be careful that I don't give the impression that somehow the Roman leadership were superheroes. And that while the citizens of Rome were doing the human thing in this situation and freaking out, that somehow these senators and young elites of Rome were calm, cool, and collected. Because the Roman writer Livy makes it clear that they were not. He relates an incident from right after the Battle of Cannae, when the survivors were streaming into nearby towns, the Roman survivors, and congregating and talking and trying to get their mind around what had just happened. My translation of Livy says that these Romans were stupefied by the situation. Incredulous. And in their heads, we're starting to think of contingency plans. What would you do in that situation? If you knew your family was back in Rome and this enemy army was coming, and they're going to burn down your house and steal your stuff and kill and enslave your family, what's the responsible thing for a husband or father or head of a household to do in this situation? What would you do? We would probably think that the responsible thing would be to figure out a way to get your family to safety, which is what many of these young Roman elites seem to have been thinking at the time, too. After all, Rome was finished, it's every man for himself, and how do I get my kids out of the city? Livy and the Romans at the time, or certainly afterwards, considered this cowardly and treasonous. And he, as the hero of the Roman side of the story, the young Scipio, soon to be Africanus, the son of the Scipio, who first fought Hannibal after Hannibal crossed the Alps, was a young man of 19, 20, 21 at this time. Probably a veteran of most, if not all, of these battles with Hannibal. Quite a lot of experience to have accrued by that age. Very brave, supposedly. A lot of Alexandrian virtues, you would say. The ancient writers make him sound a lot like Alexander the Great at times. He's supposed to have shamed, 
denigrated and at a certain point pulled his sword and threatened the life of these nobles who were wavering, saying that he'd kill anybody who would leave Rome in the lurch at a time like this. It's starting to look like a lot of regimes look just before they fall. You can go look back at history at all these regimes or empires right at the very end when people are panicking and the leadership set each other's throats and some people want to flee and some people are going to kill the people who want to flee. It's a very tense situation. And back in Rome, they're starting to put the city on red alert and try to fortify the defenses, try to get some people in uniform, do whatever they can to fight what they figure is on the way, right? Hannibal's army. Even some of Hannibal's troops think that that's what the army's going to do. Livy has a story of one of his subgenerals coming right up to Hannibal after the Battle of Kenny and saying, if we march on Rome now, you'll be eating in the capital in five days. And here's the moment a lot of historians and generals and amateurs and fans like yours truly feel is one of those crucial turning point, knife edge, whatever you want to say, moments of history. Because Hannibal said something to the effect of you'd have to think about it. Do we march on Rome? I'll have to think about it. Livy believes this saved Rome. And if that's true, then that I'll have to think about it moment may have saved our modern world. Because Livy believes, and generals like, well, the one that comes to mind instantly is uh, Bernard Montgomery, the famous British World War II general, believe that had Hannibal marched on Rome at that point, Rome would have fallen. That no matter how brave the Romans thought they were when Hannibal's army was five, six, seven days march away, that that bravery would have melted the minute they showed up outside the walls. Most of the modern historians, though, that I read in preparation for this program, some of them, believe that Hannibal made the right decision, not marching on Rome. That dealing with Rome's very formidable walls and defenses, even if just manned by the citizens of the city, was not the way Hannibal needed to be wasting his army down. Wasn't prepared with siege engines and everything. It would be a long, drawn-out siege that might be tougher on his army than on the Romans. It was also a deviation from his strategy, which was to detach the Roman allies from Rome and use them to keep Rome down. In any case, the people in Rome didn't know that Hannibal wasn't coming, and they were doing all sorts of things to improve their situation fast. First of all, as survivors from Kenny streamed into the city, they were instantly organized into fighting forces so that they could man the walls. The Romans were lowering the age of the people who were going to join the legion so they could get some 17-year-olds and maybe even younger in their fighting. In fact, they took 8,000 slaves, told them they could fight for the Romans, have their freedom, and the Romans would compensate the slave owners with two slaves for every one they gave to the state down the road when things were better. Problem is, of course, the Romans didn't have the armor and the weapons for these people, so they had an ingenious idea. They went and looted their own temples where offerings from past victories had been hung up on the walls and stored. The Romans used to take the armor and weapons of the people they defeated, display them in celebrations and triumphs after the battle, and then store them in these various temples as offerings. They ransacked these temples and put the slaves in all this antique and foreign armor, some of them apparently dressed as Gallic Celts. Shows you the stress of the times, anything that they could do to scrape together fighting forces. And one of the reasons they had to do this is because the Romans were busy shocking Hannibal 
with their attitude towards the Roman prisoners. They could have had a lot more fighting men back if they had just dealt with Hannibal. This they would not do. You see, after the battle, Hannibal did what just about every ancient general does. It was a standard part of ancient diplomacy that after the battle, the way you deal with the defeated enemy is you go and you start to have negotiations over the prisoners. Normal part of the negotiations. Hannibal has a lot of Roman prisoners and a lot of Latin prisoners. and He's going to just let the Latin prisoners go. All the Roman allies are going to let them go. No ransom, nothing, because I'm your friend. I'm here to free you from the Romans. He's going to send a herald to Rome to negotiate for what the ransom's going to be. Apparently he needed money, too. So he sends this contingent of people back to Rome. The Romans are made aware that they're on the way, and they send a message to, according to Livy, send a message to this group of herald and diplomats that you will not be allowed within the city walls, that we're not going to be talking about prisoner exchanges. This, by the way, was standard Roman practice. 60 years before this time, when the Greek general, Greekish general, Pyrrhus of Epirus, had defeated the Romans, he did the same thing, standard practice. I'll send a, a negotiator to negotiate the exchange of the hostages. And Rome said, no, we're not talking to you till you're off our soil. 60 years later, they did the same thing to Hannibal. Keep the prisoners. We're not negotiating with you. Now, think about what a move this is by the Roman leadership. One, they need these guys back. Too bad. We're not giving you money. And we're not negotiating for prisoners. Not just that, these people that Hannibal holds are the husbands, fathers, siblings of the Roman citizens. And Livy has a moment that he describes during this period that is so dramatic and heartrending when the Roman crowds are beseeching the Senate with tears in their eyes to send these people home. Just give them the money and get my kid back. And the Roman Senate says, not only will we not do that, we're going to pass a law that says you can't use your own money to do that. Think about how rough and tough that is. And Hannibal kills, executes some of these Romans, and sells the rest into slavery. And the Romans have to use slaves instead of their own experienced fighters because they were not going to negotiate with an enemy on Roman soil. This is the sort of attitude that makes you think, wow, something about the Romans that were just special. Or at least these people that were leading the Roman state at that time. People like Polybius, who was a Greek, thought that the Roman governmental system and the quality of their leaders during this period were the reasons for Rome's dominance and why it conquered the world, the secret hidden reason. And by the way, after this period, we lose Polybius, basically. None of this stuff or little of the stuff that he wrote after this time made it to modern times. So we're stuck with Livy and some other Roman writers who were, we hope, writing from Roman histories that are now lost to us because they're writing sometimes hundreds of years afterwards. And sometimes they're very difficult to follow, and historians aren't sure if it's accurate. Livy, for example, is a main source, but he's very confusing at times. What he's not confusing about, though, is the drama of this moment. Instead of marching on Rome, what Hannibal did was divide his army, we're told, and send a portion of it, commanded by his brother Mago, down to the south of Italy. 
The cities down in the south of Italy were some of the last to be incorporated into the Roman alliance system and were some of the least loyal to the Romans. Most of them had joined the cause of Pyrrhus of Epirus when he came over to Italy 60 years previously to fight the Romans. And most of these cities were willing to join Hannibal. And Mago's army in the vicinity would help the ones that weren't sure to make up their minds. Should be pointed out, though, that with all these cities, they were, in a sense, politically divided over whether or not to join Hannibal or to stay with the Romans. Many of the noble Roman families had intermarried with some of the leaders of these various cities, and so they were torn whether or not to stay with Rome or go with Hannibal. So a lot of times there was a lot of infighting, almost a civil war within the cities over what they were going to do. This was less a problem in the south than in some other parts of Italy. Now, what Mago was able to do when he went down to the south of Italy was have access to the sea again. Remember, Hannibal had left some three years before from Spain following a land route. Basically, the government in Carthage had had little or no contact with him since then. Imagine fighting a war where you get your first update, oh, three or so years after it starts. Mago was able to get on a ship in the region and get across the water and get back to Carthage to deliver this first report of how Hannibal's war against the Romans is going. And we're told he appears in front of the Carthaginian Senate with a bag. And he tips the bag over on the marble floor. And hundreds of gold rings fall out, clinking on the floor. Talk about making a dramatic entrance. These rings are the rings torn from the dead Roman nobles at the Battle of Cannae. They all wore rings as a sign of their status. And now Mago was showing the Carthaginian government the fruits of Hannibal's victory. He was there to ask, by the way, for reinforcements and money. The war's going well. Hannibal could use some help. And both Rome and Carthage had their political factions. Even at a time when Carthage should have been 100% happy with Hannibal's victories and conduct, there was another political party to take a shot at him. We're told that Hanno, one of the main representatives of the anti-Barca partisans in Carthage, was still able to say, hey, if you're doing so well, why do you need more money and troops? You would think you sound like you're losing. But most of the uh, Carthaginian government sided with Mago and sent some reinforcements his way, which made it to Italy in 215, including some elephants. This was the only significant reinforcement Hannibal would get in almost 20 years on Italian soil. But let's remember, Hannibal probably wasn't expecting help from the home country anyway, so this probably wasn't as big of a downside as you might think. He knew, for example, that the Romans controlled the Mediterranean Sea and that it was unlikely you'd get help at any time from the home city. After all, that's why Hannibal took the land route over the Alps as he did. Maybe he detached Mago to ask for help because the plan wasn't working out as he'd expected. Those Roman allies were not coming over to the Carthaginian side as planned. I mean, after all, there was that big victory at the Trevia. Still no major defections. The year after that, the victory at Lake Trasimene, still no major defections. Maybe he sent Mago down there because the original plan was failing. But the original plan started working after the Battle of Cannae because all of a sudden the defections started to happen. 
And it wasn't just the cities that Hannibal should have been knowledgeable that he could have had in his hands. He knew that the southern cities were not that happy with Rome. He got a hold of cities that even the Romans probably were surprised changed sides. The great city of Capua, for example, in the region of Campania, went over to Hannibal. That was a major coup. And it wasn't just Italian cities that defected to the Carthaginian cause. It was foreign powers, too. For example, the great kingdom of Macedonia to the east, a hundred years before, ruled by the family of Alexander the Great. They came in and piled on the Romans at this decisive moment when it looked like the Roman state was tipping over, capsizing. They'd been resenting an increasing amount of Roman influence in the area that's modern-day Albania now, and they must have seen this as a chance to finish the Romans, and they made an alliance with Hannibal and the Carthaginians. Also, the very strategically important city of Syracuse on the island of Sicily had a leadership change and switched sides from the Roman side to the Carthaginian side. That area you could envision as almost a jumping-off point, a, a way station between the Italian mainland and North Africa. It was the key reason for the First Punic War. And now the biggest city on the island had gone over to the other side. It looked as if Rome was capsizing. But this is where maybe you could say the one real error of Hannibal's plan begins to make itself known. Because once these cities changed sides and joined the Carthaginian cause, they were all of a sudden Hannibal's responsibility to protect and defend. This completely changed the strategic situation in Italy. And the Romans took advantage. First of all, after the Battle of Kenny, once again, the Romans learned their lesson, went back to the earlier Fabian strategy that was so unpopular with the aggressive Romans, but that worked, of keeping your legions away from Hannibal. Don't combine them into large mega-armies that he can then just use his genius to destroy. Treat the Carthaginian army in Italy like a giant bear and raise smaller Italian armies that act like a pack of dogs and make it impossible for that bear to be everywhere at once. The Romans used every trick in the book to harness their superior manpower and put more legions in the field than ever before. And they kept these legions small. And they instantly attacked any of these formerly allied Roman cities that defected to Carthage. All these cities then would message Hannibal and say, please bring the army here and help us. Hannibal could only be at one place at one time. When that giant bear of a Carthaginian army would march to another newly allied city to try and keep the Romans from taking it, the Roman army that was besieging it would just move off and away, lift the siege. But the other Roman armies in the rear of the giant bear, would then go and attack any cities from the area the Carthaginians had just left. In other words, taking advantage of the fact that they outnumbered the Carthaginians in the number of armies. If you look at the war in Italy, over more than the next decade, the rest of Hannibal's time in Italy, he never again has a chance to destroy large numbers of Roman troops in any one encounter. He'll have some victories. It'll be like the bear managing to get its claws on one of those dogs occasionally. But by and large, the Romans managed to neutralize Hannibal in Italy and keep him as sort of a nasty force to be bottled up in a specific part of the peninsula. Until Hannibal leaves Italy, the rest of the conflict there will be a war over trying to take this city or not lose that city. Lots of tricks and stratagems used to try to get cities to change sides. And there were still some shocking events. For example, 
in 211, Hannibal will actually march on the city of Rome, doing what he didn't do in 216 BC. But in 216 BC, the Romans were in a weakened, demoralized, and precarious state. By the time Hannibal marched on Rome in 211, the city was strong, the defenses were powerful, there were troops to defend them too. And the truth was, is Hannibal's move in 211 was nothing but a feint, a way to try to draw off Roman attacks in differing parts of Italy against Carthaginian allied cities. It was a trick, didn't work. In 208 BC, both of the Roman consuls would be killed in a Carthaginian ambush at the same time. That had never happened before, both consuls being killed at the same time. The heads of the Roman state, both dead within a day. And at that time, Hannibal actually took the ring off one of the dead consuls, which was the sign of his office, and tried to forge a letter so that he could get into a nearby city and get it to change sides. All these little tricks were going on. But it must have been clear to the Carthaginian general that he needed more armies and more leaders to lead them so that he could be in more than one place at a time, or his grand plan was going to fail. He was at a stalemate, the way things were. So... One way or another, he planned a game-changer. And the game-changer involved one of the few Carthaginian generals who were also aggressive and that Hannibal could really trust. Another one of Hamilcar's lion's brood children, Hannibal's brother, Hasdrubal. Now, Hasdrubal at this time was in Spain. He had his hands full trying to deal with the Romans there because part of the Roman strategy against the Carthaginians was to isolate and neutralize Hannibal in Italy, which this strategy of multiple armies against his one army was doing, but also to attack Carthaginian interests and armies in other parts of the Mediterranean. They were doing this in Spain, for example. They did it in Sicily, too, retaking the city of Syracuse from what the Romans would have thought was a rebel government. And having to deal with, by the way, one of the great interesting sieges in history where the Syracusan forces were using the great mathematician scientist Archimedes to design their siege weapons. You've probably seen recreations of some of the things Archimedes was supposed to have come up with. He was the ultimate ancient geek, if you will. There may have been heat rays, we're told. Certainly there were these giant machines that would pick Roman ships up, up into the air, and then drop them back down in the water. The Romans wanted to get their hands on Archimedes, too, during the siege, because he was a little like the ancient world's version of Werner von Braun, the Nazi rocket scientist that both the Soviets and the U.S. wanted to get their hands on after the war so they could make use of his technical expertise. It was the same way with Archimedes. The Romans had issued orders, supposedly, that when the city fell, they were to get him alive. The Romans had plans for his great brain, right? And Archimedes died a noble geek's death, you might say, because the story goes that a Roman soldier burst into his room and Archimedes was so engrossed working on a math problem in the sand that when the Roman soldier asked him who he was, Archimedes didn't answer or told him to leave him alone, so the Roman killed him. A noble geek's death. In any case, so the Battle of Syracuse was raging as part of this conflict against all of the Carthaginian elements that weren't under Hannibal's command. And the major war besides the Italian war was the war in Spain. The war in Spain was brutal, and a lot of prominent Romans lost their lives in this. I mean, for example, the elder Scipio, 
and Scipio Africanus' uncle, the elder Scipio's brother, both were killed fighting in Spain. Hasdrubal was in all kinds of trouble, but eventually he puts together a relief force. A force intended to follow Hannibal's earlier route, cross the Alps, come down into Italy, and give his brother that second army that he needs to neutralize the way the Romans are fighting this war. Two Carthaginian armies in Italy, both commanded by sons of Hamilcar. It must have sounded like the solution to the stalemate. So, in the year 207, while dealing with Roman attacks all through Spain, Hasdrubal manages to get an army to set off toward the Alps, following a very similar route to Hannibal, in order to reinforce his brother. Now, we are told that this is the most scary time for Rome since the Battle of Kenny's aftermath. And the ancient historians go off on, well, Livy mainly, goes off on how scared the Romans are and their imaginings of what would happen if the two brothers were able to combine forces. Maybe this was the knockout blow for the war. And the Romans dispatched a couple of different armies to cover several different passes of the Alps, not knowing exactly which pass Hasdrubal and his army was going to emerge from. So they covered a bunch of them. Hasdrubal ends up running into one of these Roman armies, and there is a decisive battle called the Battle of the Mataris River. And at the Mataris, when Hasdrubal sees that he's lost, he is said to commit some sort of a form of suicide by recklessly charging his horse into the middle of the Roman mass. And the way Hannibal is said to find out that his reinforcements will not be coming is when a Roman cavalryman rides up to the Carthaginian camp where Hannibal is and throws his brother Hasdrubal's head over the wall. When Hannibal sees his brother's head, he knows he's on his own. Now, even though Hasdrubal failed in his attempt to reinforce his brother's Carthaginian army in Italy, you have to think he probably did the right thing getting out of Spain when he did. Because things were all of a sudden not looking that great for the Carthaginians in Spain, which is interesting when you consider that Spain was the main European base of the Carthaginians. And the ancient historians agree that the reason that the Carthaginian fortunes had turned so sour was because of the genius of the Roman who was commanding the Roman forces in Spain. He's our old friend, Scipio, the one who will eventually be called Africanus. His father had already died there recently fighting the various Spanish tribes and the Carthaginians. So did his uncle. They had both been killed there, doing what Scipio was doing now. The truth is, Scipio the Younger was really too young to even be doing any of this. The ancient writers say that the reason he was given a command like this at such a young age is because, well, very few other Roman generals were interested in it at all. It was not seen to be a good bet, a good gamble. Spain was a tough place to make a name for yourself, and the ancient writers seem to think that Scipio was eager for the job when no one else was. So he gets to be the general in Spain when he's too young already to be doing this. You have to remember, though, his generation was an extremely experienced, militarily speaking, generation. You figure by this time, the war's been going on for about a decade. If you're Scipio or any of his contemporaries at 22, 23 years old, 24 years old, half your life had this war's been going on. 
So even though he was a young man, the young men at this time in Rome were very experienced militarily, and many of their elders had been killed in this war. So it's not surprising that younger people were getting commands that they normally wouldn't have gotten. And that's what accounted for the fact that Scipio was able to display his genius in Spain. It became the first place his generalship became noticed because it was awesome. Here was probably the greatest Roman general that the Italian state had seen up to this point. And what he did when he got to Spain, we're told, is he began drilling these legions intensively. This was an important point because I always like to think of the Roman legions of this period as being very similar to United States armed forces in the two world wars. Because there were veterans in both those armies, especially the Roman ones, people with lots of experience in fighting, but these legions were temporary things thrown together as needed. So while they were composed of a bunch of people who'd fought before, they'd never fought together before as a group. So each time you raised a legion, it was green and inexperienced, and the longer it stayed together, and the more training it did, the more effective it became. You compare, say, the U.S. Army, green and inexperienced, in one of its early battles against the Germans in North Africa, the Battle of the Kasserine Pass, and they performed poorly, like green troops. You fast forward a year, two years later, this army is a much more professional, organized, cohesive, effective thing. The Romans were the same way, and Scipio began making sure that the legions that he took over when he went to Spain in 210 would become veteran as quickly as possible. This became maybe his hallmark. Not just that, with these legions, that were quickly becoming more and more veteran as he used them more and more in Spain, he was able to do things on the battlefield that no Roman commander had ever been able to do. Scipio is famous for being an outside-the-box military thinker and taking the tried and true and very formalized way of Roman fighting. You know, this rank first, the Hastati, followed by the Princeps, followed by the Triarii. There was a programmed way of fighting most Roman generals did. Scipio began to experiment with all sorts of different tactics, pulling out the third ranks and the second ranks and moving them over to the side and doing things that you just didn't expect from a Roman commander. Many of the things he did seemed to be copying some of the things Hannibal had done to the Romans. With these new tactics and these veteran effective legions, Scipio turned the tide in Spain in almost no time. It was very quick, a couple of years. Maybe his most important victory was when he stormed the city of New Carthage, one of Carthage's main bases in Spain, and was able to get his hands on the all-important Spanish hostages. An important element of the ancient world to ensure good behavior on someone you had defeated or subdued was to have many of the noble families turn over one of their children and then these children would be in the custody of the victors as guarantees of the treaty or the deal or the agreement or the contract. And you can think of how effective that would be if you thought about turning over one of your children to a foreign power that had just made an agreement with your state. And then if your state started talking about maybe violating the agreement, you might put a little pressure on your leaders if you could to stick to the deal so your kid didn't get hurt. As a matter of fact, the writer from this period that we talk about all the time, Polybius, was himself a Greek hostage in Rome as part of a deal that Rome had made with a defeated Greek power. 
So this was a common occurrence. And when Scipio was able to take the city of New Carthage, he got 300 of these noble hostages in his hands. And he sent them back to their families. All of a sudden, Carthage's guarantee of Spanish tribal loyalty was off. Makes you think once again, Hasdrubal did the smart thing by getting out of Spain with Carthaginian armies while he could. Now, even before Scipio is finished in Spain, he's already preparing for his next endeavor. And it seems pretty clear that he had bigger prizes on his mind because we're told he was reaching diplomatic feelers out across the Mediterranean to some of the North African Numidian tribes. The Numidians had a sort of a love-hate relationship with the Carthaginians, and they were often under the Carthaginian thumb. They fought many wars with the Carthaginians, though. They would play a large role in sparking the Third Punic War. They were also seen as sort of the soft underbelly of the Carthaginian state. And Scipio was trying to do to the Carthaginians what Hannibal's plan was initially against the Romans when he first came into Italy. His plan had been to detach the Roman allies from Rome. It looked like Scipio was trying to detach the Carthaginian allies from Carthage. As a matter of fact, we're told at one point he actually takes a ship across the Mediterranean in order to have a secret meeting with one of the powerful Numidian kings, a guy named Syphax. And in a weird twist of timing, he shows up at the same time that a Carthaginian delegation shows up to do the exact same thing, make sure that Syphax is going to be loyal. And there is a wonderfully almost comedic dinner where you'd like to be a fly on the wall, where we're told Scipio has to sit at the same table, maybe, maybe even on the same couch, with the Carthaginian general who he had just defeated recently in Spain. Must have been a very interesting dinner. Now, the Carthaginians sealed the alliance with Syphax by marrying him to a apparently an amazing Carthaginian noblewoman named Sophonispa. And so Syphax is smitten. And all Scipio can do is return across the water back to Spain. But before you know it, he is in Rome, where in 205, Scipio is elected one of the two consuls for the year. And this is an extraordinary thing because he's too young to be elected consul. It shows you what being the hero of the Spanish Wars, maybe, is able to get you. You get the rules waived occasionally. It also seems pretty clear that one of the things that Scipio was promising to do if elected consul was to win the war, to do what must have been near and dear to the aggressive Roman heart and land an army right in Africa, go right after the main city of Carthage. We are told that there were opponents to this idea. The by now ancient Fabius Maximus, the delayer, the one whose strategy had maybe saved Rome when Hannibal was beating up Roman armies left and right, came out of retirement to speak in front of the Senate and say, don't launch an attack against Africa? Have you forgotten about Hannibal? He's still sitting in our country with his army. Deal with him first. Nevertheless, Scipio got the support of most of the Roman government, went to Sicily, where he began training an expeditionary force to land in Africa. And we're told the core of this force happened to be the veteran survivors of the Battle of Kenny more than a decade before. When that battle was over, all the survivors were thrown into a couple of legions, disgraced legions, who had to wear almost a scarlet letter, weren't allowed any of the normal benefits of being a Roman legionary, had to sleep outside the camp, stuff like that. And the way the story is written, it makes it sound like they were itching for redemption. 
Scipio added some new troops to them to bring them up to strength, began prepping this army, getting the supplies together. One of the things that made Scipio such a great general was that he combined the traditional Roman aggressiveness, which is a great quality to have in any general, with precision and meticulous planning. And by the time he was actually able to get his invasion force off to Africa, his consulship had expired. The Roman state just kept extending it so that he would have time to do what he was originally elected to do, which was win the war. In 204 BC, he lands on the coast of Africa, took 500 ships, 400 transports to get that army across. Scipio wins a bunch of initial smaller skirmishes some cavalry battles and some other things from forces that are sent there to harass him after the landing. He also gets the support of one of the Numidian princes, a guy named Massinissa. He's not the strongest, but at least now Scipio's got one of the Numidian factions on his side. And a lot of the skirmishing between the Romans and the Carthaginians in North Africa at this time seems to be a battle over who gets to have the Numidians on their side. We mentioned a lot earlier that you can almost look at Hannibal's career and sum it up based on whether he had the Numidians with him at a battle or not. When he had the Numidians, he won. When he didn't have the Numidians, he didn't. Maybe the Romans understood this because when they were in Africa, a ton of effort was made to get the Numidians on their side. Now, not long after this, Scipio puts one of the main Carthaginian cities under siege, the one he landed nearby, a place called Utica. And this had the desired result, bringing a combined Carthaginian and Numidian army to its rescue. And they camped nearby Scipio's camp. And negotiations began between the two sides. Syphax was said to be right in the middle of this, the Numidian king, trying to broker a peace deal. Something like, you know, Scipio, you and the Romans go back to Italy and leave North Africa with your invasion force, and Hannibal will leave Italy. Sort of a quid pro quo deal. You do this, we'll do that. And Scipio acted as though he was interested. Turns out he was merely playing for time. Because he was about to conduct one of the most audacious endeavors in all of ancient warfare. A surprise night attack on the Carthaginian and Numidian camps. At this most important juncture in the war story, we get the great historian Polybius back for a second. One of the fragments of his later history that survived is about this event, an event he considered to be the mark of Scipio's military genius, this night attack. Because you have to remember something. The combined Carthaginian and Numidian army that was facing Scipio near Utica was at least 50,000 men. The ancient sources actually agree for once that it was 100,000 men. That seems a little high. But you have to imagine a large stadium full of people camped outside. Scipio and one of these Numidian princes, Massinissa, as we said, decide to attack the camp at night using fire. Now, night attacks are very rare in the ancient world. They're difficult to coordinate. They're very risky. You don't hear about it much. As a matter of fact, Alexander the Great is said to have turned down the opportunity for a night attack against the Persian Empire when he was fighting them. The fact that Scipio was not just able to do this, but able to pull it off, is, well, as Polybius said, maybe the greatest sign of his greatness. We're told that he and his Numidian allies figured out where all of the exits were that the people in the, in the opposite Numidian and Carthaginian camps would use to try to escape once the night attack began. They also figured out that the camps were very flammable. 
the Carthaginians and Numidians had used a lot of wood and twigs and stuff that was going to burn well. So what they did was, in the middle of the night, after lots of deception had been put into play to conceal their real motives, the Romans set fire to the Numidian camp. And while this fire was burning, the Numidians were all coming out of the camp in panic, not having any idea what was going on, and assuming that the fire was accidental. This was key. They would be running out of these huts only to be killed by Roman soldiers while they were naked and without their arms, we're told some of them still drinking and drunk. What's more, the Carthaginians ran out of their camp, some of them running down to the Numidian camp to help fight the fires, others just standing there without their weapons, without their armor, just looking at the horrific scene. You have to imagine 60, 70, 80,000 people now lit up by firelight with panic everywhere, not anyone realizing that the Romans are actually butchering people at that very moment. These Carthaginian soldiers who are just watching the action down in the Numidian camp are also taken by surprise when Scipio's soldiers start butchering them. In a matter of an hour or two, 50, 60, 70,000 people are killed or scattered. And think about what that must have done to Carthaginian morale. The Carthaginians think that they have Scipio countered, a large army about to take him on, and in the space of an evening, the whole situation is turned on its head, and Carthage loses an entire army, and Scipio loses almost no one. It was a high-risk, high-reward sort of gamble, and Scipio made sure he was in the ranks of the greatest generals when we classify him by taking that risk and having it pay off. Now, back in Carthage, of course, this created all sorts of dismay. People in the Carthaginian government advocating for peace right now, Others advocating for abandoning the whole Italian campaign and dragging Hannibal back as quickly as possible to defend the home city. But the senators who won out in their government were the ones cautioning patience, saying that between what we could scrape together that was scattered after that night attack and all these new mercenaries that just happened to be on their way here, we can scrape up another army. And in a month, they did. Some 30,000 more men, were told, in the space of a month, were scraped together and we're facing Scipio across the field of battle again. And in a battle that was almost as quick as the night attack from the month before, he scattered and destroyed this army. Now Carthage was in a state of panic. Hannibal was recalled from Italy, as was his brother Mago, who would die on the way over from a lingering wound. And Livy says that the Carthaginians asked for a peace dealer, an armistice, simply to play for time to get Hannibal back. Historians aren't sure whether that was a ruse or not. But that's why Scipio doesn't do all that much while Hannibal's on his way back. The Carthaginian government is trying to make a deal with him and saying, let's have a peace deal. Uh, you send some people back to Rome. Tell them here's what we think we could maybe work out. And then, of course, blaming the whole Second Punic War on Hannibal and his father and their family. Hannibal, we're told, when he lands back in Africa, is like an alien landing on foreign soil. He's been gone from Africa for so long, since he was a child, in fact, that this is a strange place to him. It's not, it doesn't seem like home to Hannibal. And he actually camps with his army away from the city of Carthage. Historians have wondered why he did this, but many think it's because he was a little afraid of coming back to Carthage. After all, the diplomats were blaming the whole Second Punic War on him. In the meantime, Scipio and his Numidian allies go after the Numidians that are allied with Carthage, and they manage to defeat and overthrow them. 
the Numidian king and Carthaginian ally Syphax is brought back to the Romans in chains. He'll die in Roman custody years later. Now Hannibal's situation becomes critical. Because not only will he not have enough Numidians on his side, because they've all gone over to the Romans, but the Roman strength now is getting greater every day. In an effort to prevent these Numidians from making the Romans any stronger, Hannibal moves his army out and prepares to have a decisive encounter in Africa with Scipio. But before he does, he decides he wants to talk to this contemporary, the other greatest general of antiquity, maybe. You throw Alexander in with this group, and you probably have all the greatest generals of antiquity. And it's an amazing meeting, which both Polybius and Livy say happened. You try to imagine Napoleon Bonaparte having a meeting the night before, one-on-one with the Duke of Wellington before Waterloo. Or Patton or a Montgomery having a pre-battle meeting with Erwin Rommel. You'd love to have been at that event to hear the actual conversation that took place. We're told that both of these great generals arrived with their bodyguards, and then they rode their horses slowly toward a middle ground with just their interpreters with them. Livy makes this many pages of dialogue. Polybius is much more concise. Basically, the conversation boiled down to this. The 45-year-old Hannibal was trying to tell the 34-year-old Scipio to have a little patience and wisdom and realize that your current situation is changeable. He talked to him about fortune and how things can change sides. He said, look, I'm the great victor of Kenny. I'm the one who was outside the walls of Rome. I was on top of the world, and now look at me. This can happen to you, too. Do you really want to have this battle tomorrow? We can have a peace deal right now where Rome gets more than she ever thought she'd get out of this war. You can have Spain, you can have all the islands in the Mediterranean. We could have a real good deal, and you don't have to risk anything. Or we could fight this battle tomorrow, and maybe that's when fortune decides to leave you. And that'll ruin everything you've built up as far as your reputation. That'll leave all that in the dust. Do you really want to risk all that? Scipio gives his side of the story, which is that the Carthaginians can't be trusted. He said, they're the ones that started this war. They're the ones who have violated all the various agreements for an armistice. He said, either Carthage surrenders unconditionally and puts themselves in our power, or we fight tomorrow. And that's what ended up happening. The battle itself was full of tactical stratagems. In a way, you could almost see it as a reverse of the Battle of Kenny. Because this time, the Numidian cavalry, for the most part, was on the Roman side. And the Carthaginians set up in more depth, hoping to punch through the Roman center. There were 80 elephants at this battle, too. And the Romans are said to have lined up in a unique formation that left sort of running lanes between the ranks of men so that these elephants could be herded down these open corridors between the troops rather than stomping on the troops to get to where they needed to go. Scipio's cavalry blew the Carthaginian cavalry off of both wings. The elephants were dealt with. The inferior Carthaginian infantry put up a pretty good fight for a while. And of course, Hannibal's veterans, some of whom had been serving with him for 20 years and fighting Romans for that long, put up a very good fight. But eventually, the Carthaginians were as utterly defeated at Zama as the Romans had been at the Battle of Kenny. 
I like the way historian Victor Davis Hansen puts it, where he says that the orphans of the Trebia and Lake Trasimene and Kenny brought the war home to Africa. That gives it some context, doesn't it? Not just that, remember that the main legions in this battle were made up of the survivors of the Battle of Kenny. Imagine the sense of payback they must have felt. You see your countrymen and the leaders of your nation and your comrades brutally killed and destroyed over many hours by these same people and the same general on the other side of the battlefield, and now you get to do it to him. The orphans of the Trebia, Lake Trasimene, and Kenny had a lot to fight for, and the payback was going to be heavy. The casualties were not quite as high. You didn't have 70,000 Carthaginians dead, but you probably had between 45 and 50. About half of those people dead, the other half prisoners. No matter what the situation, you just had a 40 or 50,000 man army wiped off the map. That, of course, coming on the heels of all those other losses that Scipio had dealt to the Carthaginian military since he landed on North Africa, and the Carthaginians were done. And even at this point when they were done, there were some in the Carthaginian government that were advocating continuing the war. Their fortifications were powerful. They had recently built up another big fleet. They thought they could maybe, some of these people in the Carthaginian government, continue to put up a fight. And we're told of a dramatic moment where Hannibal, who has not been near the Carthaginian Senate since he was a boy, walks up to the rostrum while this Carthaginian senator is speaking about continuing the war and without saying a thing, simply grabs him by the clothing and pulls him down off the speaker's platform. He later apologizes for doing this, says he doesn't really know what the right manners are. He's rough. He's lived a military camp life. He hadn't been in Carthage forever. But he basically makes it clear that these politicians in Carthage did not understand that they were lucky to have the deal they had. Lucky that the Romans aren't marching on the city to kill everyone. There were probably some in Rome that wanted everyone dead in Carthage and the city conquered. Historians seem to indicate that some of the Roman Senate thought that Scipio's terms were a little lenient. He demanded that all the Roman prisoners and deserters be turned over to the Romans. The deserters, of course, were going to be beheaded and crucified. The Carthaginian territory was to be reduced to simply the area you know, closest to Carthage itself. Pretty much modern-day Tunisia was going to be their mandated boundaries. Carthage was not to make war outside of Africa under any conditions, and they had to ask the Romans for permission to make war in Africa. This was a bit of a poison pill, as we'll find out later. Also, the Carthaginians were forced to pay a huge war indemnity. We would call it reparations today. They were going to have to pay it yearly for the next 50 years. The Romans must have assumed that the Carthaginians were under their thumb for the rest of eternity, which is the way Romans usually treated their enemies. The Carthaginians, after these terms were agreed to, had to row their 500 or so ships out off the Carthaginian coast and burn them as part of the treaty ending the Second Punic War, burn them right in front of the population of Carthage. Sort of a way of saying, just so you know, you were defeated in the last war. And I've always tried to imagine what that must have looked like, 500 wooden warships burned at the same time. I can't, I can't picture it. But you get the feeling the Carthaginians could never get that image out of their head. And that was what the Romans wanted. Scipio returns to Rome as the great conquering hero. If he wasn't already, he became the equivalent of a modern-day megastar. 
he gets the title added to his name, Africanus, to denote his achievements. And he gets to hold a triumph, and he's very popular, as you might imagine. After all, he was the one that defeated the enemy that came the closest to defeating Rome in basically all of Rome's history. The Second Punic War was the closest that Rome ever came to being conquered by another nation-state. They would have problems with barbarians, obviously, throughout their history, but never again would another nation have their armies traipsing around Italy defeating legions. So obviously, the man who was able to turn the fortunes of war from the way they were in 216 BC, when Rome was there for the taking, maybe, to the complete defeat and submission of the city that did that 15 or so years later, that man was bound to be a star. And to me, the Second Punic War seems to have done to Rome what the Second World War did to the United States. Look at the difference between the United States right before and right after the Second World War. It's a complete transformation in terms of military power and impact on world affairs. Same thing is true for Rome. They go from a provincial power, an Italian state, to one that is fighting and conquering most of the rest of the Mediterranean world after the Second Punic War. And the truth is they're doing a lot of this conquering as a result of the Second Punic War. Livy said that Rome conquered the world in self-defense. And it sounds a little like a joke, but if you are a Roman, maybe you could see it that way. Like every conquest you're making is another domino in the line of dominoes being tipped over. And the first domino that was tipped over was Hannibal defeating the Romans time after time in Italy. For example, the Romans get into a war with the Macedonians during this period, the First and Second Macedonian Wars. These are directly a result of the Macedonians allying with Hannibal and the Carthaginians when they think Rome is just about to capsize right after Kenny. The Romans didn't go after the Macedonians right away, but they didn't forget it either. They would conquer Macedonia with a mere two legions. Remember, they had about 24 fighting the Carthaginians at one time. A mere two legions to overthrow the state that was once ruled by Alexander the Great. Not just that, they would end up conquering Greece the same way with a, with a trivial amount of forces compared to what it took to beat the Carthaginians. One of the reasons why is these armies were made up of hardcore veterans who had been bloodied in the Punic Wars. These were some of the best armies that Rome would field during the Republican era, certainly in the era of the old Roman military system. And it was because the troops were so experienced. This was the equivalent of Rome's greatest generation, the thing we Americans often call the World War II generation. And for about 20 years after the Second Punic War, you have access to these soldiers who are diehard veterans. And these are the armies that do the majority of conquering in the Mediterranean world after the Second Punic War. Once these armies start to retire and these soldiers die out or go back to their farms and retire, the armies take a huge drop in efficiency. You can compare it to the way the U.S. Army in 1945 was a devastating well-oiled machine, and only five years later, when the Korean War breaks out, it's a green army that lacks effectiveness because the veterans had, for the most part, gone home. Now, the Romans may have been on to new conquest and sort of forgotten about Carthage, but Carthage was becoming the first example that I can think of in history of something that's known as the revenge of the defeated. And you can see the revenge of the defeated in play when you look at what happened to the defeated powers from the Second World War. Look at Germany and Japan after that war. The fact that they were prohibited from concentrating on defense and military things 
allowed them to put all of their efforts into rebuilding economically and commercially. And this allowed them to reemerge on the world scene much quicker than might have been imagined. The Carthaginians did exactly this thing after the Second Punic War. They had always been a great money-making commercial state, and they went right back to work making money. As a matter of fact, they were led early on, we're told, or at least partially led, by the great Hannibal himself. He seems to have gone into government, become a senator of some note, and maybe gone after the rich people in Carthage and said, you need to pony up some extra money and we'll get out of this hole that the Romans have put us in. In fact, he becomes such a threat that another faction in Carthage, and it's interesting, both Hannibal and Scipio, will essentially have their careers destroyed through what we would call today partisan politics. Some of these enemies of Hannibal, these other politicians, sent an emissary to Rome saying, you need to come over and see what Hannibal's doing. And it seems like they may have played upon the fears of the Romans that they always had of the Barcas, these sworn enemies of the Roman state. Also, the last thing the Romans wanted was the Carthaginians getting back on their feet real quickly. So a delegation is said to have gone to Carthage to uh, have a discussion with Hannibal. And Hannibal flees. He has a real suspicion that these Romans are going to kill him or take him back to Rome. So he gets out of Carthage and he leaves and he never comes back. We're told that he continues to flee from place to place over the years, just getting away ahead of the Roman, I guess you might call it the secret service or the special forces that seem to be trailing him every step. Rome wants Hannibal dead or brought back to Rome, and he manages to elude these pursuers for many years. It also looks to me like he's continually looking for some club to attack the Romans with, like that oath that he took with his father as a little boy was still foremost in his mind. For example, at one point he would flee to the court of Antiochus, the king of the Seleucids in Asia, and the historians make it seem as though he's providing military support and help and advice to the Seleucids. You know, you're going to face the Romans eventually, let me tell you how you beat them. He's supposed to have told them that you actually have to go to Italy if you want to beat the Romans. You have to attack Italy. You can't just sit back. The Seleucid king at one point is supposed to have held a military parade and shown his army off to Hannibal and said something to the effect of, well, do you think these will be enough for the Romans? Meaning, do you think these will be enough to beat the Romans? Hannibal's supposed to have replied, yes, this should be enough, even for the Romans. Meaning the Romans were going to almost drown in their blood when they ripped through this Seleucid army, which they did in 189 B.C. Now, whether Hannibal was there or not, we don't know. We just know that when the Romans came to accept the surrender of Antiochus, one of the terms of the deal was turn over Hannibal. So Hannibal fled again. Eventually, the Roman secret service or spies or whomever it was that was continually chasing Hannibal would corner him in the area near the Black Sea today. And we're told that Hannibal's house had all these hidden secret passageways so he could escape if the Romans showed up, because they were always showing up. And when the Romans surprised him at this house, he's supposed to have asked his servants to run down and see if any of those secret passageways were clear, and they came back up and reported that none of them were. There were men stationed at every exit. At this point, in 183 BC, at the age of 64, Hannibal opens up a secret compartment in his ring, we're told, that he always had with him that contained poison. And one of the ancient historians says that his last words were, let us ease the Roman people of their continual care who think it long to await the death of an old man. And he kills himself. 
Interestingly enough, this same year, 183 BC, would be the year that his main adversary and one of the other greatest generals of the ancient world would also die, probably of some illness, exiled from Rome, self-exile. You see, Scipio Africanus, after the Carthaginian triumph, did not fare so well in Rome. He was dealing with the same sort of problems Hannibal was, what we would call today partisan politics. He and his brother go on to some military campaigns in Greece, and some of their adversaries, perhaps worried about the growing power of this family, accused Scipio's brother of financial misappropriation, in other words, being crooked. And we're told that Scipio arrives in front of the Roman Senate, obviously angry that they would ever question him, the most revered man in Roman politics, this great figure, and he is supposed to have taken his brother's accounting books from the campaign in question and ripped them up in front of the Roman Senate and thrown them at the senator's feet. And since it was the anniversary of his great victory, we're told, at Zema, he marched out of the Senate chambers and said that he was going to go thank the gods for his victory back at Zema, and a huge crowd just marched with him to go do the same thing. In other words, he had the crowd with him. But he was so disgusted with the partisan politics and the ungratefulness of his people, that he exiled himself to another part of Italy, dying there the same year Hannibal died, and we're told that his epitaph read, Ungrateful fatherland, thou hast not even my bones. Angry. Both men dying angry at their country. Now Carthage continues to recover, even without Hannibal. We're told that they shock the Romans, ten years after the Second Punic War ends, by offering to repay the war indemnity that's set at 50 years long, because that's how long the Romans thought they'd need to pay it, the Carthaginians come back after 10 and offer to pay the whole thing off. The shocked Romans say no. They want the Carthaginians to be reminded every year when they have to pay it that they're defeated. But after 50 years, the Carthaginians pay it all off. And they're doing great. Historians say that many of the remaining architectural wonders that are left over from Carthage, for example, the giant double harbor outside the ancient city, that all these things were built in the prosperous period between the Second and Third Punic War. So Carthage was really recovering and getting rich. And this started to really freak the Romans out. There was a, an important Senate delegation that was sent to North Africa in 153 BC. And it happened because the Numidians, under the same now ancient Numidian king Massinissa, they were continually poking the Carthaginians, knowing that any time the Carthaginians complained to the Romans, the Romans would usually err on the side of the Numidians, their allies. So Massinissa took advantage of this and was always eating away at Carthaginian territory. So eventually he grabs something that's so large, the Carthaginians turn to the Romans and say, what are you going to do about this? And the Romans send a delegation. This expedition includes a senator named Cato. Cato is a veteran of the Second Punic Wars. He's in his 70s by this time. He goes back to this ancient enemy and sees a powerful, rich state, which he didn't expect. He comes back to Rome determined to have another war with Carthage. He starts ending all of his speeches in the Senate, whether or not it has anything to do with foreign affairs, by saying, oh, and by the way, I am of the opinion that Carthage should be destroyed. At one speech, a very important speech, we're told, after saying this Carthage must be destroyed line for a long time. We're told in one of the great rhetorical tricks of all time, he allows a fig to fall from his toga. A particularly large, juicy 
fig, and he holds it up to the crowd and says, This fig came from a mere three days away by ship. And what he was doing when he said that was appealing to the two sides of the Roman character that would be concerned about this. One side were the national security people, we would call them today. The people that were worried about threats to Rome. He had just told them that this rich state that could produce figs like this was only three days away by ship. Must have freaked out the people that were worried about Rome's defense. But the other group he was appealing to, the other senators that would be fodder for a message like this, were the ones who were greedy for more conquests. Look at the kind of fruit they were producing a mere three days away. We could have that place. And apparently the Romans decided that they were going to have that place. Now we have to remember that for this period, the sources that historians have to consult are few and far between, first of all. What you do have is fragmentary and biased, and there's all kinds of problems with them. But it seems that Rome was trying their best to find a reason to spark a war with Carthage. And remember, they had sort of set up this reason in the peace deal of the Second Punic War. The hidden poison pill in the whole treaty. The Roman Numidian allies under Massinissa, who's now in his 70s or 80s, still leading the Numidian people. We're told that the Numidians have been taking advantage of their Roman allied help and nibbling at Carthaginian territory all around. Finally, the Carthaginians, after going to the Romans and saying, are you going to stop this? Are you going to stop this over and over again? Finally, they declare war on the Numidians. And it may have been that the Romans had told Messinissa to do something so outrageous that the Carthaginians would go to war because, of course, that would violate the Second Punic War's treaty. It would give the Romans a reason to go to war. And when the Carthaginian armies started fighting with the Numidian armies, they did just this. This is where some of the ancient historians say that Rome besmirched her honor somewhat because she had obviously made a decision to provoke war with Carthage. She was just looking for a reason, and she didn't tell the Carthaginians this until she had wrung all sorts of concessions from them. For example, when the Roman delegation arrived at Carthage to tell them that war was going to be declared, the Roman fleet had already set sail. So essentially the delegation arrived at Carthage and says, we're going to war with you, and by the way, the fleet will be here any minute. We're told that this astonished the Carthaginians. And they scrambled to try to find a way to satisfy whatever the Roman demands were. So they went to the Romans and said, what do we need to do? The Romans told them, you need to give us 300 of your children as hostages, your noble children. And the Carthaginian ambassadors didn't want to do this because the Romans were providing no guarantees or no timelines on when these kids were going to be returned. But we're told they just didn't have any options. So they turned over the 300 children to the Romans. You read Appian when he talks about the reaction of the Carthaginian families to their children being carted off by the Romans. Here's what Appian says. The Carthaginians had some suspicion of this Senate resolution, since there was no security given for the return of the hostages. Nevertheless, the danger was so great that they could omit nothing in which hope could be placed. So anticipating the appointed time, they sent their children into Sicily, amid the tears of the parents, the kindred, and especially the mothers, who clung to their little ones with frantic cries, and seized hold of the ships and of the officers who were taking their children away, even holding on to the anchors, and tearing at the ropes, and throwing their arms around the sailors in order to prevent the ships from moving. Some of them even swam out far into the sea beside the ships, shedding tears and gazing at their children. 
Some of them tore out their hair on the shore and smote their breasts in the extremity of their grief. You can imagine the trauma that this was doing to Carthage. But they thought if it saved the city, it was worth it. What they didn't know was that the Romans were intent on destroying the city. This wasn't enough. The Romans came back and said, well, if you are a people that really favor peace, you wouldn't have any need for weapons, would you? Turn over all your weapons in the city to us. The Carthaginians were freaked out by this because they were fighting a bit of a civil war in their territory. They also had to deal with the Numidians, but they felt they had no choice. So they turned over 200,000 suits of armor. The historians say innumerable javelins and darts, 2,000 catapults for throwing pointed missiles and stones. And they went back to the Romans and said, okay, are we good? And the Romans said, no, now we need you to abandon the city of Carthage. Move it 10 miles inland so that you have no access to the sea. This, of course, stunned the ambassadors who thought that the 300 children were supposed to be enough. When it wasn't, they thought that the disarming of the city was supposed to be enough. Now they were told that they had to leave the city and destroy it and move 10 miles inland. They said to the Romans, you told us that if we did all these things, Carthage would be preserved. And the Romans pulled a legalistic, read the fine print sort of trick on the Carthaginians. And the Roman consul said, well, we considered the Carthaginian people to be Carthage, not the structures and the tombs and the temples and all that. When the Romans make this point to the Carthaginians, the ambassadors go berserk. The best historian we have for this period is a guy named Appian, writing you know, a long time afterwards, but probably working from contemporary sources. And Appian gives an extremely dramatic account of the way that the ambassadors reacted to all this. He writes, While the Roman consuls were still speaking, the Carthaginian ambassadors lifted their hands toward heaven with loud cries and called on the gods as avengers of violated faith. They heaped reproaches on the Romans, as if willing to die or insane, or determined to provoke the Romans to a sacrilegious violence against ambassadors. They flung themselves on the ground and beat it with their hands and heads. Some of them even tore their clothes and lacerated their flesh as though they were absolutely bereft of their senses. They said after the first frenzy was passed, there was a great silence and prostration as if of men lying dead. Appian writes, When their outcries ceased, there was another interval of silence in which they reflected that their city was without arms that it was empty of defenders, that it had not a ship, not a catapult, not a javelin, not a sword, nor a sufficient number of fighting men, having lost 50,000 a short time ago against the Numidians. They had neither mercenaries, nor friends, nor allies, nor time to procure any. Their enemies were in possession of their children, their arms, and their territory. Their city was besieged by foes provided with ships, infantry, cavalry, and engines, while Massinissa, their other enemy, was on their flank. They beseeched the Roman consuls. They said, do not defile your reputation by an act so horrible to do and to hear, and which you will be the first in all history to perform. They said, Greeks and barbarians have waged many wars, and you Romans have waged many against other nations. But no one has ever destroyed a city whose people have surrendered before the fight, and who delivered up their arms and children, and submitted to every other penalty that could be imposed upon them. They asked the Roman consuls not to push our calamities to the last extremity. 
but the Roman consuls had orders from the Senate to do exactly that. The consul gave some feeble speech about how the Carthaginians would do great away from the coastline, and they didn't need to be a seafaring people, and the sea would just tempt them into becoming trouble again. When the ambassadors realized that basically the consuls were saying, we're going to have war no matter what, they said, we're going to be killed by our own people before we even get this whole message out. They knew what would happen to them when they went back to Carthage, telling them that they had to move the city inland after they had already given in on the demands for children and disarmament. The ambassador said, would you at least please take the Roman fleet and make a display outside the Carthaginian harbor so that the Carthaginian people are aware of the dangers they face? Maybe that will save our lives. Appian writes about the return of these ambassadors to Carthage with the Roman message and how the people were thronged outside the city waiting to hear what the Romans had decided. Carthage at this time had a population of between 250 and 300,000 people. It was a big, big city. And at some point during the march of the ambassadors to the Senate chambers to give their report, the crowd becomes aware that it's bad news. And Appian writes about the pushing and the shoving and the screaming and the yelling and just the chaos in the city as the Carthaginian people try to figure out what's going on, knowing it's negative no matter what. Partway through the ambassador's report to the Carthaginian Senate, the senators start screaming when they realize what's going on. And Appian writes that the people hearing these screams burst into the Senate chamber screaming also. And he writes, Then followed a scene of indescribable fury and madness, such as the Menids are said to enact in the Bacchic Mysteries. Some fell upon those senators who had advised giving the hostages and tore them to pieces, considering them the ones who had led them into a trap. Others treated in a similar way those who had favored giving up the arms. Some stoned the ambassadors for bringing the bad news, and others dragged them through the city. Still others, meeting certain Italians who were caught amongst them in this sudden and unexpected mischance, maltreated them in various ways saying that this would make them suffer for the fraud practiced upon them in the manner of the hostages and the arms. Appian says, Most of all was the anger kindled by the mothers of the hostages, who, like the furies in a tragedy, accosted those whom they met with shrieks and accused them of giving away their children against their protest, or mocked at them, saying that the gods were now taking vengeance on them for the lost children. He writes, A few kept their wits about them, closed the gates, and brought stones upon the walls to be used in place of catapults. Carthage declares war on Rome at that point, frees all their slaves and tries to enroll them in the Carthaginian army the same way the Romans did when Hannibal had defeated them at Cannae, put a couple of generals in charge of things, both of them confusingly named Hasdrubal, but not related to Hannibal's family. We're told that the fact that they know there's no way out of this bolsters the courage of the Carthaginians who begin... Appian says, turning all the sacred places and temples and every other occupied space into workshops, where men and women work together day and night without pause, taking their food by turns on a fixed schedule. Each day they made 100 shields, 300 swords, 1,000 missiles for catapults, 500 darts and javelins, and as many catapults as they could. For strings to bend them, the women cut off their hair for want of other fibers. Carthage is in a total war state, the women shaving their head to provide the ropes for the catapults that the Carthaginian people are frantically building. The sources say that the Romans were overconfident and didn't rush the city 
which gave the city time to put up a resistance and to stiffen. It would take the Romans three years to break into Carthage. And the commander of this attack had a familiar name. It was Scipio, this the adopted son of Scipio Africanus, now dead, which made him the grandson of the elder Scipio, who first faced Hannibal in 218 BC on the other side of the Alps. What a continuity. And Carthage was not easily overcome. The defenses were unbelievable. They were supposed to have 20 miles of walls ringing the city. Had its own double harbor where supplies could be brought into a besieged city. They had a 60-foot wall surrounding this city of 300,000 people or so. It was supposed to be 30 feet wide, and there was a ditch 60 feet wide in front of it with a wooden palisade on top. The Romans would be camping outside those walls for three years. Imagine being inside the city of Carthage and your children are growing up under siege. You can look from the walls any day you want to and see the Romans camped outside, waiting to break in and kill you. At some point, Carthaginian morale must have been fading because Appian writes of a measure that the general in charge of the city's defense took to stiffen resistance. He writes, Hasdrubal took the Roman prisoners whom he had, brought them upon the walls in full sight of their comrades, and tore out their eyes, tongues, and tendons with iron hooks. Some of them he lacerated the soles of the feet. He cut off the fingers of others, and some he flayed alive. All who survived these tortures he hurled from the top of the walls. He thus gave the Carthaginians to understand that there was no possibility of peace with the Romans, and sought to fire them with the conviction that their only safety was in fighting. Apparently this had the reverse effect. The Carthaginians bewailed this move by their general. Some of the Carthaginian senators protested, and then he had them put to death. The military assured that no one was going to talk about surrender. Sometime in the next three years, in 146 BC, the Romans found a way over the walls of Carthage. We're told they found a tower that was of a similar height to walls nearby, and the Romans threw planks and boards across to provide a bridge, and they ran over the walls into the city, and the Carthaginians were surprised to find Roman troops in the city. And the Romans started capturing people, and the Carthaginians all fled to the big hill that formed the center, we're told, of Carthage. It was called the Bursa, and it was fortified, and it was the old center of the city. And people ran up there to take refuge. There were three or four major streets in Carthage that had apartment buildings lining them on both sides, six stories high. You don't think of ancient cities being this urban. And the Romans began to fight for these buildings in vicious urban street fighting. At this point, the historian Appian begins to tell the tale of the death of this ancient great city in a way that makes you feel like he took it from a source, an eyewitness. Polybius was there. Maybe it was his text that Appian used to describe the death of this city. But listen to what this ancient historian says happened after Scipio and his troops got in the walls of Carthage. And imagine seeing this in high definition, you know, Blu-ray. Imagine CBS News or the BBC reporting live from the death of Carthage. That's what Appian is doing. It's the ancient version of reporting live from the scene. Appian says, Now Scipio hastened to attack the Bursa, 
the strongest part of the city, where the greater part of the inhabitants had taken refuge. There were three streets ascending from the forum to this fortress, along which, on either side, were houses built closely together and six stories high, from which the Romans were sailed with missiles. They were compelled, therefore, to possess themselves of the first ones and use those as a means of expelling the occupants of the next. When they had mastered the first houses, they threw timbers from one to another over the narrow passageways and then crossed as if on bridges. While war was raging in this way on the rooftops, another fight was going on amongst those who met each other in the streets below. All places were filled with groans, shrieks, shouts, and every kind of agony. Some were stabbed. Others were hurled alive from the roofs to the pavement, some of them landing on the heads of spears or other pointed weapons or swords. No one dared to set fire to the houses on account of those who were still on the roofs until Scipio reached the bursa. Then he set fire to all three streets together and gave orders to keep the passageways clear of burning material so that the army might move back and forth freely. Then came new scenes of horror. As the fire spread and carried everything down, the soldiers did not wait to destroy the buildings little by little, but all in a heap, so that the crashing grew louder, and many corpses fell with the stones into their mists. Others were seen still living, especially old men, women, and young children who had hidden in the inmost nooks of the houses, some of them wounded, some more or less burned and uttering piteous cries. Still others thrust out and falling from such a height with the stones, timbers, and fire were torn asunder in all shapes of horror, crushed and mangled. Nor was this the end of their miseries, for the street cleaners who were removing the rubbish with axes, mattocks, and forks, and making the roads passable, tossed with these instruments the dead and the living together into holes in the ground, dragging them along like sticks and stones and turning them over with their iron tools. Trenches were filled with men, some who were thrown in head first with their legs sticking out of the ground, writhing a long time. Others fell with their feet downward and their heads above ground. Horses ran over them crushing their faces and skulls, not purposely on the part of the riders, but in their headlong haste. Nor did the street cleaners do these things on purpose, but the tug of war, the glory of approaching victory, the rush of the soldiery and the orders of the officers, the blast of the trumpets, tribunes and centurions marching, their cohorts hither and thither, all together made everybody frantic and heedless of the spectacle under their eyes. Six days and nights were consumed in this kind of fighting the soldiers being changed so that they might not be worn out with toil, slaughter, want of sleep, and these horrid sights. Scipio alone toiled without rest, hurrying here and there without sleep, taking food while he was at work until utterly fatigued and relaxed, he sat down on a high place where he could overlook the work. We're told that after six days of this, some of the citizens came forward with olive branches, the traditional token of submission, and Scipio allowed... 50,000 men and women out the narrow gate. They were going to be sold into slavery. He wanted the Roman deserters, of course, which the Romans always paid close attention to. No mercy for the deserters. And we're told that a giant fire was built by the deserters up on the bursa in the fortress that the Romans hadn't taken yet, and they began to just jump into the fire. It was an easier death than what the Romans had planned for them. The deserters began to kill themselves. There are stories of Carthaginian women killing their children and throwing them into the fire with themselves. You must imagine this moment as a Gotterdammerung for the Carthaginian state, a genocide on a massive scale, the wiping out of a culture, nation, people, and race 
Where's the Carthaginian DNA today? You may have some in you. And if so, your relatives were being killed on a massive scale. We're told that even, you know, the Roman general, Scipio Emilianus, cried when he saw this. Polybius says he cried right in front of him and then quoted a line from the Iliad, a line about the fall of Troy. And when asked why he was crying, he told Polybius that he foresaw the same thing happening to Rome eventually. And here he was looking at what it was going to look like. Interesting to think of these hard-bitten Roman generals in tears, but you can imagine what the sight must have been like. It's interesting to note, too, in 146 BC, when Scipio was doing this to Carthage, another Roman commander was doing the exact same thing in almost equal amounts of violence to the ancient city of Corinth in Greece. The Romans were beginning to put their stamp on the Mediterranean world, and it was a bloody stamp. But depending on the way you look at it, the Carthaginians might have had their revenge. Because in a similar way to a scorpion or a snake stinging the person who's killing it, they injected a sort of a poison into the Roman Republican system. Because all of the money that was pouring into Rome began to change it. All of the slaves pouring into Rome began to change it. All of the wars that the Romans were fighting because they were busy conquering the world in self-defense, these wars started because of the Carthaginian war with Rome. And finally, the military changes that were required for the Romans to beat the Carthaginians made it possible in later years for people like Marius and Sulla and eventually a guy named Caesar to take the Roman military and use it to dominate Rome. So a hundred years after this time, 150 years after this time, when Carthage is but a memory, a vicious, bloody, scary memory to the Romans, the poison that the Carthaginians had injected in the Roman system destroyed the Roman Republic. And somewhere, you get a little bit of feeling that a guy named Hamilcar, wherever he might be, and his three sons, the lion's brood, had a smile on their face, feeling that somehow, some way, justice had been done. Audible is the Internet's leading provider of spoken audio entertainment, providing digital versions of tens of thousands of audiobooks for download to your computer, your iPod, or your MP3 player. You can listen wherever and whenever you like, just like you're listening to this podcast right now. And Audible has more than 40,000 titles you can choose from in a wide variety of genres. You can also get a free audiobook download when you sign up today. Just go to audiblepodcast.com forward slash hardcore history to do that. And if you're not sure what you want, maybe try Julius Caesar, Man, Soldier, and Tyrant by J.F.C. Fuller. Military historians out there remember that J.F.C. Fuller was a military man who wrote a lot of histories about people who already had a lot of histories written about them, but did it with an eye for, well, military things from someone who had a military mind. J.F.C. Fuller's histories are not better, they're just different. Check out what he thought of Julius Caesar in his book, Julius Caesar, Man, Soldier, and Tyrant. Just go to audiblepodcast.com forward slash hardcore history to get your free audiobook download. If you think the show you just heard is worth a dollar, Dan and Ben would love to have it. It's about the cost of a soft drink, and yet it's so much more stimulating. A buck a show. It's all we ask.